Hello and welcome to Salon London's series of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. This is Salon on Drugs. First up, we have Professor Nutt. David Nutt is currently the Edmund J. Safra Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology and Head of the Centre in the Division of Brain Sciences at the Imperial College in London. You, however, may know him better as the man who was ejected from Tony Blair's government for insisting ecstasy was less harmful than horse riding. We invited him to Salon London where he promised to give us the truth about drugs and it does not make for easy listening. Here is Professor Nutt on cannabis. Going back to almost the same time as we saw the rise in alcohol-related liver deaths, we see there's been a 20-fold increase in cannabis use over the last 40 years. Now, the, the five-fold increase in liver deaths was paralleled by about a two-fold increase in drinking. There's a very non-linear relationship Alcohol has a, a, a parabolic relationship. The more you consume, the much more harm you get. And you might think with a 20-fold increase in the number of people using cannabis, there might be some measure of harms which you could find. Now, I showed you the deaths are non-negligible. Uh, and the government was desperate to reclassify cannabis from C to D um, under Jackie Smith and then Alan Johnson. And, um, and they clung on to this idea that cannabis causes schizophrenia. And they clung on to it, even though we used the best database we have. This is the MRC general practice database in the UK. It, it looks at about a third of the population through general practice. And we showed that there was no relationship. A 20-fold increase in cannabis use had no impact whatsoever on the incidence or prevalence of psychosis or schizophrenia. None whatsoever. And the same is true in all Western countries where there's been a, this massive increase in cannabis use. There is no relationship between cannabis use and having schizophrenia. And in fact, we, if, if you take the most uh, re the best estimate from the Swedish conscript study, you can predict that if you've got to stop 5,000 young men and 7,000 young women from ever smoking cannabis, to stop one case of schizophrenia. So, so this is not a, an important public health problem. And it's certainly not a problem you can address by criminalizing a million young people. But that's what we did. That's what this government, the last government did. It decided it wanted to make a statement about cannabis, even though it had no health harms of any value to justify it. But it was a smokescreen. It was a moral decision that they, they used some very, very uh, inadequate data to justify. And over the years, we've seen these kind of issues, these kind of irrational approaches to drugs repeat themselves. The cycles of criticism of drugs and banning of drugs uh, has been, you know, well, it existed really for the last several hundred years. And when I was working with the ACMD, I decided to set up a scheme where we could have a much more systematic way of appraising drug harms. And we, from first principles, we determined that there were actually 16 ways in which a drug can harm you. There are nine ways in which it can harm the person and seven ways it can harm others. And we the, um, a very detailed analysis of these different harms. And then we applied these to 20 drugs. And we used a technique I haven't got time to go into called multi-criteria decision analysis, which is the best way of comparing different sorts of harms. We did this in a, as I say, in a very detailed, systematic way. And we came up with this result, which is um, quite a well-known graph now. And this graph shows the ranking of harms and a relative the proportional uh, contribution of 
different drugs in terms of their harms. The blue is the harm to the user, and the red is the harm to society. And I have to say, I was surprised, uh, although now I can understand why, alcohol came out as the most harmful drug in the UK. Largely because this huge red bar here is the harms of society. And these are the harms from, from health harms, traffic accidents, so much violence. Over half of all violence is related to drink, whether that's domestic violence or other interpersonal violence. In terms of the harm to the user, crack, crystal meth, heroin come out higher. But overall, this is the drug which is really causing the greatest harm to British society. This is the drug we should be focusing our health uh, improvement efforts on. You go to cannabis, it's considerably less harmful than, than alcohol. And if you go to drugs like ecstasy, there's very little harm. So this is where the, inter the target of intervention should be. And what's also interesting, if you look at the, the harms of the different drugs and, and, and plot them against the classification of drugs under the misuse of drugs, that A, B, C, and unclassified, you see there is no relationship. So the Misuse of Drugs Act is supposedly a scientific instrument to determine the penalties for using drugs of different harms. And it bears no relationship whatsoever to the harms of drugs. And so it's pretty obvious, therefore, the law is incorrect. And an incorrect law is an unjust law. And, and also, the, the, the way in which the Act controls uh, the way we do research and treatment means that there's a tremendous burden, there's a tremendous hurdle to overcome in order to be able to explore, let alone fully utilize, any benefits from these drugs. And this is something I've got quite exercised about in recent years, and something I'm sort of championing now as a, a very necessary change we've got to make in order to benefit society through looking at the, the potential utility of some of these drugs which have been banned on the false premise that they're harmful. And what's interesting is that if you look at many banned drugs, you'll find that they have potential for treatments. Cannabis, there are 80 products in the cannabis plant, almost none of which have been explored as possible treatments because cannabis is illegal. Ecstasy, I'll talk about psilocybin, may have roles in depression, OCD, LSD for terminal illness and for addiction. And methadone, the most recent one, you know, and and cathinone, and cat, was actually developed as a treatment for addiction before it got banned. And once it's been banned, it will never be developed because, because working with drugs which are illegal is so much more expensive and, and challenging than working with drugs that are. But of course, our salon audience asked Professor Nutt about ecstasy and horse riding. But he said the best thing to do was to give the ecstasy to the horse. But what about legal highs? We had food historian Leonie Souk to talk to us about all the substances that we are really addicted to. The first one up was sugar. George Orwell describes the conundrum far better than I can in The Road to Wigan Pier. He says, The peculiar evil is this, that the less money you have, the less inclined you feel to spend it on wholesome food. When you are unemployed, which is to say when you are underfed, harassed, bored and miserable, you don't want to eat dull, wholesome food. White bread and marge and sugar tea don't nourish you to any extent, but they're nicer than brown bread and dripping in cold water. Unemployment is an endless misery that has got to be constantly palliated, and especially with tea, the English man's opium. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Leonie Souk, 
Um, Leonie, when we talked about um, you being part of the um, Salmon and Drugs lineup, we talked about um, the history of legal drugs within cooking, um, within food history. Um, how did you approach the subject and decide what to do? I looked at sugar, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of looked at two aspects of sugar. So I, I kind of looked back a bit um, at the history of sugar um, in England, mm-hmm. and again when it kind of first arrived, it was a kind of renaissance um, arrival, really. Um, but actually, what also interested me is sugar today because I think it's hugely important. I think it's quite a contentious subject. Um, I think there are lots of issues which um, it really tells us about class. So that was sugar. But what about caffeine? How did we become so addicted to coffee? When did it start? Well, it was the 17th century because um, before that we were really kind of an ale drinking society. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, I mean, not to be touched, but kind of sat around in a kind of alcoholic fog. <laughs> and then um, when coffee came along, um, which in the Arab world had been around for, for centuries, um, but it, it didn't hit Europe until the mid-17th century, everything changed. Um, and I think the big change uh, was the kind of sociability aspect mm-hmm. of it. And so how we communicate to each other, because it gave this huge forum for sober thought. And I think that's what the allure was. Um, they didn't know about caffeine back then. And in fact, if you look at how it was described, um, it's not too positive. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of quite kind of, people are quite perturbed by it. I think it's, you know, it's called kind of a satanic tipple and a muddy, muddy water and things like that. But yet it took off. And I think it's to do with the, the environment that was um, sold in. Everyone knows where they stand with caffeine or sugar. But what about neurocognitive enhancers? Not so easy. Luckily, we had Barbara Sahakian, Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology at the University of Cambridge, to explain a little bit more. I am here with Barbara Sahakian. Hi. Hi. Hi, Barbara. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And you're here for our um, salon on drugs. And you're helping us with the ethics of smart drugs. That's right, yeah. Because it's an increasing lifestyle used by healthy people. Yeah, what are smart drugs? Well, smart drugs, um, there are quite a a few that people don't think of as smart drugs. So caffeine in coffee Mm -hmm. and uh, nicotine Mm -hmm. um, in cigarettes uh, are actually uh, enhancers. Mm -hmm. I mean, many people actually smoke to stay concentrated and focus their attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, a lot of people use caffeine to try to stay awake and alert. Um, but these drugs that we're talking about are mainly uh, prescription drugs, mm-hmm. and they've mainly been developed for people who have uh, neuropsychiatric disorders like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or perhaps Alzheimer's disease um, in order to improve attention and concentration in that group of people. What we're finding is more and more uh, drugs such as Ritalin, which is a very common drug for ADHD, attention mm-hmm. deficit hyperactivity disorder, and mm-hmm. Ritalin is actually methylphenidate. Right. And that boosts um, noradrenaline and dopamine in the brain. And that drug uh, is a very uh, useful treatment for the severe stages of ADHD. But we find a lot of healthy people use it. In fact, about uh, 16% of people on college campuses in the USA use uh, Ritalin. What's the downside? You know, what's the, what's the problem with yeah. taking these drugs to, keep, to make us perform harder and better? Well, that's an excellent question. And some of our philosophers in the UK... Um, John Harris and other people say, well, these wouldn't be called um, cognitive enhancers if it wasn't good for you. Mm-hmm. And so there are some people who think that, you know, it's a good way to enhance the whole population and maybe get a competitive advantage over the global uh, sort of, um, you know, competitive situation. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, I think the, the major thing that most people point to are two things. First is a safety issue, mm -hmm. because these drugs, um, when the Food and Drug Administration actually licenses these drugs, they're licensed as a treatment for a disorder. Mm -hmm. So they have uh, long-term safety and efficacy studies, and people with that particular disorder, be it Alzheimer's disease, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, or whatever. But they don't have long-term safety studies in healthy people, mm -hmm. so we really don't know if it is safe. It's all looking pretty good for drugs at the moment. Is there a downside? Well, we had Sean Atwood to explain just what happens when you love drugs a little bit too much. Um, this is Sanon London, and I'm here with um, Sean Atwood. Hello, Sean. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> and I'm really pleased that you're here. Um, Sean, you told me that your two obsessions were ecstasy and addiction. Yes, they are the overriding themes of my life, basically, <laughs> yes. And having themes like that is going to uh, land you into a bit of trouble sooner or later. Do you want to um, tell us about your experience? Yes, I started raving when it began in England, and I got addicted to that lifestyle. Went to America. I'm only from a working class town in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. I pursued my dream of making a million in the stock market. <clears throat> the money went right to my head. I started throwing UK-style rave parties in the desert in Outland, Phoenix, Arizona, but I didn't see the laws an obstacle. So I had people bringing thousands of hits of ecstasy from Holland. So it's my own death fault, the SWAT team smashed my door down, and they ended up in the jail that's got the highest rate of death in America. And, um, and how long did you serve in the... Is, is it Maricopa prison? Um, Maricopa County Jail was where I started out on remand yeah. for 26 months. Um, but the total... I served six, just under six years. Yeah. And your motivation for throwing these parties in Arizona, um, where did it come from? What did, you, what did you want to achieve from it? I had more money than common sense. <laughs> and I wanted the American public to experience the feelings I had when I first started raving. It was misguided. I didn't see the law, you know, as um, a barrier to it. it. So it was about wanting to share the, the joy of drugs with in, yeah, in, in, let's, in the beginning it was, but I'm business-minded uh -huh. and I ended up becoming the biggest ecstasy dealer in the state of Arizona. Had the Italian Mafia were my, were my main competition, they ended up coming after me and had the Mexican Mafia protecting me. Okay, yeah. but that's really interesting, but in, right in the beginning, when you were uh, wanting to set these up, was it always, uh, were you always looking at it as an angle to make money? Or was there, uh, did you see the rave culture as something that could be... Um, kind of like taken as a business to America or was there more than that? Was there a kind of... In the beginning my crime was I wanted everyone to have too much of a good time. Right, 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 right. right. And that motivation changed with the... Once I started throwing these parties and I'm selling ecstasy, or ha well, in the beginning I was just giving the ecstasy for, out for free mm -hmm. and all night long I've got people coming up to me impressed you know, by my rising notoriety, I've got beautiful women giving me all this attention. I started taking drugs because I was a shy student. I wouldn't get up and dance. I was too self-conscious. And now... You know, I'm starting, suddenly I'm starting to feel like a rock star. That all went to my head. And once you start to get successful like that and get attention, it changes your psychology. Mm -hmm. And I saw the business side of it then. And I saw the demand for ecstasy. And I quit my job as a stockbroker because I was having way too much fun in the rave scene. And it just got big and out of control. I'm sure there are a lot of people who um, not didn't have such incredible success, but you know, really got caught up in the lifestyle of this time, yeah. and, and really enjoyed themselves too much and gave up. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of them did enjoy themselves, but a lot of my friends who got addicted to that lifestyle are no longer with us. Yeah. Yeah. Six years that you served in prison, and you mentioned psychology, mm -hmm. and I know that during your time in prison, you, you took the time to read over a thousand books. Yeah. 
that um, helped you understand your own self and your yeah. psychology and motivation mm -hmm. more, but also for anyone who could have had a salon, mm -hmm. I don't think there's anyone who could have spent the time thinking around the subject of drugs as much as you have. What, in what ways did you change your opinion on drugs during that time? I had no idea society rounded up its drug addict criminals and put them in a place that had the most drugs. You know, 90% of the prisoners were injecting crystal meth or heroin. Um, people would come in as a student pot smoker and they'd join the gangs and graduate to this hardcore drug use. Up to two-thirds of them had hepatitis C. And over time I figured out it's a business model. The prison gets $50,000 per year per prisoner. Mm -hmm. Most of the prisoners were non-violent drug offenders. Before I was arrested, I was locking up and throwing away the key. Prisons are full of Hannibal Lecter serial killer types. Society needs to protect from these people. Mm -hmm. but once I got in there and saw that 90% of the prisoners were non-violent drug offenders, either doing drugs, selling drugs, feeding the drugs, committing crimes on drugs, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, I, under I started to understand what was going on. They don't give them any education. They don't give them any rehabilitation. They want them to come straight back. It keeps the profits rolling for the private prisons. Mm -hmm. And this is what our politicians are introducing to the UK right now. Because mm -hmm. they're getting massive contributions from these corporations to keep this in place, to tighten the laws on drugs, and keep the profits rolling. Mm -hmm. And so you believe that actually prisons are not the solution for people suffering, people addicted to drugs? It's further criminalizing the most vulnerable members of society. You know, from my experience, people who are doing drugs are not happy in their natural state. These people need counselling, they need rehabilitation, they don't need to be thrown into these prisons that are run by violent gangs and further criminalised. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Salon on Drugs from Salon London. Next month, sex.